the reason why I was angry was this. So when I was born, for most of you who know about the disability that I have, two months in, I had two heart surgery, two open heart surgeries and one stroke. And I think that life really changed a lot in those two months. Like I went from being a normal kid to having a kid that had surgery. So I have this mark now that I still have that reminds me of what I was. And so I'm talking about this because it's important to set this up so then when we jump into this passage, it makes a lot more sense. So very ang- I was a very angry kid growing up because you know what? Like the doctors told me, or told my parents really, and they told me later on, 70% chance of death, 30% chance of living, right? And I just so happened to be alive. But you know, growing up, I was like, I sometimes wish, God, that you just let me die. Like, why don't you just let me have that 70%? Like, why did you have to defy the odds for me? And the reason why I was mad was because what had happened was my right side is a lot weaker than my left side to the point where in, high, in basically all growing up, what I struggled with was this. Always considered half a person. And whether it's sports, whether it's whatever. People said, oh, he's a handicap. Take him last and we'll give you an extra person, right, to cover up for that half. Or the second thing that they always say, the other thing they always said was, oh, can I help you when they see me struggling, right? Back then, the doors that I had, they were not like these kind of doors where you can just push down and it opens. They were the knobs, you had to turn it. But knowing that if I had stuff on my left side, I couldn't do it with my right side because I couldn't turn the knob. So I was like, okay, I had to put my stuff down, pick up, like open the door, I hold it over with my leg, pick up the stuff, and then go in, right? That was what I had to do every single day. I had books that I was carrying, and I'm not going to carry all the books in my backpack. No one does that, right? And so that was really difficult. But the thing that I hated most was the fact that I couldn't even staple papers together because my thumb was the weakest finger on my right side, and my pinky is the strongest finger on my right side. And so the problem was, when I stapled papers, if I was holding the papers, I couldn't staple them because they would slide, right? Because I couldn't hold it with one side and clip with the other. And so people would watch me struggle and struggle and struggle. And then they'd be like, oh, like, you know, they, they would come and try to help me. And I was just like, I don't want your dang pity, right? I think I hated that the most. It was when people tried to pity me and they're like, oh, like, you know, like, don't feel bad. It's just because you were created that way. You were made that way. Or, you know, like, you can't blame your circumstances. And I'm like, why can't I, right? And so I was really upset. Because I was like, God, of all the millions of people that you've placed on the earth, why couldn't it be someone else that went through what I went through? Why does it have to be me? And I think that's why I was really upset growing up. Because I just wanted to be normal. I asked God, I was like, every day, I was like, I pray, God, like, just make me normal. I'm not asking for you to make me some really tall, athletic guy. I'm not asking you to make me super strong, super fast. I'm not asking you to make me super smart. I'm just asking you to make me average. And you can't even do that, right? And I think I was really mad at that. I was like, why, God, do you do this to me? And if I had more time, we would look at Colossians 1, 21, 23, because it talks about the cross. And that's where things changed for me is because I started to understand the cross. And I, the reason why I chose to skip it is because we have two weeks. We had one last week, and we have one week this week, and then we're off again, right? But here's the deal. If I explained the cross, you guys would just understand the concept of the cross. And I think the last thing I want is for you guys to understand the concept of it. Because I heard it explained this way once. Imagine, if, especially if you're a music person, this applies to you. Imagine like you had backstage passes to like the greatest musician you knew like on the face of the earth. Backstage passes of VIP tickets to watch, right? To listen to whoever it is that your favorite musician is, your you're, you know, the number one musician you know of. 
And then, you know, at the end, you got to meet that person. And you got to ask them, like, oh, like, you know, like, what is it that makes you so great at your music? What makes you so talented? And I think one of the things that they would say to you is, I can't explain it. You just have it, right? I think a lot of athletes are like that too. The greatest athletes have that thing. They just have that thing that you can't explain. And the same way, I can't explain the love of Christ because it's personal. It's something that you have to experience for yourself to truly understand, right? I can explain to you all the concepts of the cross. I can explain to you what the love of Christ is and what it looks like. But it's not until you personally experience it for yourself that you really know what it means. And so that's why I'm not going to spend an hour talking about it because you guys are at that point where I think if you guys, you either have it or you don't, right? It's the thing that the musicians have. It's either you have it or you don't. You can practice all the skills. You can know the music by heart. But the naturally gifted ones have that thing, right? They just have this understanding that cannot be explained. Same thing with the athlete. The greatest athletes on the face of the planet, they have this thing that just makes them great. Yes, you can put in the time. Yes, you can work hard at your craft. But it can't be explained. I can't explain the love of Christ any better to you than the concepts. And maybe even what it means in my own life. But for you personally, that's something that you have to experience for yourself to really understand. And so today, what we're going to do is instead, we're talk, instead of talking about Colossians 1, 21 and 23, which is about the cross, we're jumping right ahead into chapter 3, which is directly tied to Colossians 1, 15 to 17, which is why we're doing it also. So what we're looking at today is two characteristics of the redeemed Christ follower. Two characteristics of the redeemed Christ follower, and we're in Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 11. I'll give you some time to turn there. It'll also be on the screen. Jonathan, I'm trusting that you'll just follow along with me. It's pretty easy to follow on my PowerPoint. Just FYI. That's why I didn't bring a clicker. But, and I didn't use one last week either. It was just fine. So I'm banking on that. So if you have your Bibles, Colossians 3, 1 to 11. This is directly tied to chapter 1, 15 to 17. All right, when you get there, just look up so I know that you're there. Or you can follow the screen, whatever works best for you. I prefer you turn your Bibles, but do whatever you think works best. And I'm going to move this closer to me. Okay, so. Okay, if you're in Colossians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, this is the Word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So the first thing we're going to look at is that if Christ is the only God in your life, which is what we talked about last week, then your mind is set on heaven. It's very straightforward from the first four verses. And no, Paul is not saying so much that we should want the things of heaven as it is saying that we should be motivated to think and act in a way that honors God in the things that are heavenly. It means that the things you like, the things you do, the things you think about, and, and the question you should be asking is this. Is this something that God approves of? Is this something God would want of me and from me and for me? And those are the questions I had to ask myself when I was letting go of anger. So we're talking about how that process of me going through the anger stages and letting go of it slowly. So that's why I set it up the way I did. So you saw the beginning portion, which is why I was angry and what I was, it's like just the emotions that I felt as I was angry. And we're going to walk through how that changed over time. Those are the questions I had to ask myself when I felt the anger inside me getting ready to like just unleash on people. Right. Now in your Bibles, after the first phrase, if then you have been raised with Christ, it says, seek or set your hearts or set your sights. It's one of those three. I, I looked up the different translations of your Bibles. So meaning that you should be looking to or looking for or pursuing or chasing. So if you're a Christian, you should be chasing the things that are pleasing to God because that's where Christ is, according to the second half of the verse, seated at the right hand of God. If you are in Christ and Christ is God and first in your life, this should come as no surprise to you that when you have that statement, you are basically saying, I'm giving my life over to God. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. The life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Galatians 2.20 And this is important, so important, that Paul repeats himself again in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But we see the difference is that he adds a little section in there, a little detail. It is not on things that are of earth. So what does that mean? How hard are you to be seeking? That's what this little tidbit is saying. You ought to be seeking it wholeheartedly. It's talking about your attitude. The attitude that you should have as you approach anything in life, if you are in Christ, is to already first be thinking about the heavenly implications that come with whatever you are about to do or say. And he writes it in the present tense. It's not past tense. Meaning that this isn't an action that you should have done or will be doing. It is something you should be doing as habit. It's something you should be doing every single moment of your life and every day, every decision you make, every breath you take, that thought should be in your head. Keep thinking about the things that are above and don't stop is what Paul is saying. And you know what? For me, in my anger, the implications, were they showing Christ? That's my question for myself. And the answer to that was absolutely not. 
and I'll talk about what those things were in a little bit. To add on to what Paul has already said, seek the things of heaven means not seeking the things of earth. But what does that look like in your day-to-day life as a believer in Jesus? Because you know what? I think it'd be nice if we just stopped there and then I just prayed and, you know, like, God, thank you for today and thank you for this message and thank you for having everyone here and I thank you. And you know what? I can't wait till we go to small groups and, you know, that's the end. Like, I wish we could stop there. But I think if we stop there, the question you'd be asking is, okay, so how? What does seeking earthly things even mean? And it means this, and this word's going to come up a lot in this first section. It means chasing the things that are here and now and having your mind stuck in the present or even in the near future without thinking about the distant future, which is 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. What it means is it's trying to be the best you that you can be on earth and settling for the best sinful, broken you instead of chasing, there's that word again, the glorified, perfect you in heaven. And you know what? Like, to be honest, like, I can't, I'm not better than you. I'm no better, in fact. And the fact that I am saying this, it's a reminder for myself every moment that I look at this. Because the truth is, I'm not any better. Like, I have to fight it with you. I'm fighting this battle every single day. It's not like because I'm up here preaching, it makes me holier. I'm not. In fact, it makes me more needy. It makes me more needy. Let's just be real here. We wish we were in our Bibles as much as we may say or act like. We do. We wish that. We wish. But to actually sit down with the Word of God for an extended time longer than 15 minutes, which is, your, which is what I allotted as your, you know, your nonchalant devotional time, You know, like, I think it's really hard. It's hard to pick up your Bible every day during the week and to do it longer than 15 minutes. And that's why I have to daily remind myself every day when I wake up, that's the first thought I have to think about before I even think i got to brush my teeth. It's got to be, God, I need to start my day with you because if I don't start my day, I might as well not start at all. Right? i got to start my day with you and then during my 10-minute California law break, with, I have to spend that with God while I'm at work. That's, you'll learn that eventually. California law says you have, to be, you have to take 10-minute breaks every four hours you work. Anyways, so every 10 minutes that I get for those four hours, it has to be with God. If it's not, then my mind goes the wrong direction. Right? And it has to end with God. So it has to start. It has to be during the day, throughout the day. And it has to end with Him. Because you know what? If I don't, then I just don't. Like, I just don't do it. I just forget, and then I don't spend time with Him. And you know what? Like, I've learned this. That's when sin knows it's got me right where it wants me. That's when my anger gets the best of me quickest. When I lose my temper the fastest is when my mind is set on myself. Because you see, what happened is the reason why my anger would burst fast is because when my mind isn't set on Christ, it's set on, you know what? I think I deserve that. I think I, <laughs> I, I'm better than this person. And so for them to question me, like, who do they think they are? That's what made me angry. It was the justification that I felt I had to do for myself. It was defending my own righteousness 
It was making sure that I was always in the right and making sure that they were always in the wrong. But you see, when my mind is on Christ, things are different because it's not set on me anymore. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. So you see how I'm kind of like just dragging this along and yeah, it, it'll, it'll all come together. So the fact that I'm leaving you hanging is part of the notes. So I do want to be clear here and say that I'm not advocating that you quit school because I'm not saying that. I don't want you to quit school and be a monk. I don't want you to stop doing what you do or being good at what you do and then just, you know, going to be pastors or just serve at church and that's all you do. I don't want you to do that. That's the last thing I really want. But what I am trying to get at is what do you allow on this earth that are temporary to consume you? We talked a little bit about that last week. Is it that high number of likes on Instagram? Is it the high number of followers on Instagram? Is it... Okay, might as well get closer. Is it school and athletics where... And you'll know that this is true if the thing that you're chasing in school, it begins to fall apart and you're losing control of it and you start to freak out and shut out and stress out, right? Those are the few things that happen when you start to get messed up because school or athletics aren't going the way you expect them to go. But the question I have for you is this. Is this one class or is this one athletic event going to change your status in heaven? Because the author of Ecclesiastes calls living for earthly things vanity, which means worthless. I said in my heart, I'm reading Ecclesiastes chapter 2 if you want to turn there. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to walk to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, which we're not allowed to do anymore, and had slaves who were born in my house. Not going to happen anymore. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, meaning that whatever my eyes saw and wanted, I was going to have it. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And then he closes the book with this, the same author does. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man.
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Think about it. He had everything he could ever want. All of the earthly success he wanted, he had it. Whether he was, he was smart, whether he was rich, whether he had all the people chasing after him and wanting to be him, he had everything. But at the end of the day, look at what he says. He says, it is all vanity. It is all for nothing. Because at the end of the day, everything that's being heard has been heard. And everything that is under the sun has been under the sun since the existence of the sun, which is before our faces were alive. Fear God and keep his commandments because that is the whole duty of man. It's not making money. That is not the duty of man. It is not getting straight A's in school. That is not the duty of man. It is not being the greatest athlete on the face of the planet. That is not the whole duty of man. Fear God and honor his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. Seek the things of heaven and not the things of earth. Why? Because as Christians, verse 3 of Colossians 3, you've died to those things. Meaning that as Christians, we're symbolically crucifying our desires and allowing Christ to live through us and in us. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for God. And if Jesus is God in your life, that is the requirement. Nothing can compare to that. Nothing can compare to Him. Your life is hidden with Christ. Verse, the fact half of verse 3. And when Christ with your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Meaning this, that no one can truly understand the significance of your salvation. Not even you truly understand the significance of your salvation. Or the security of your salvation, for that matter. Only God does. And so when Christ appears, the significance of your salvation and security will be known. And they will be, they will appear, as the verse says. And people will see, and they will know. The ones that aren't in Christ, they will see and they will know. But for you, who have some kind of understanding of what this is, what are you supposed to be doing while you're waiting for that moment, for Christ to appear? And this is where we're going to dig deep into the text because I want to focus here a lot more. We're not only to be eagerly waiting by setting our minds on the things above, but we're to be killing the sin that is within us. You who are in Christ, including myself, I guess, so we, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. And it's not just the idea of wanting to kill the sin, but it's eagerly wanting to do it. What does that mean, eagerly? It means that you will do whatever it takes whenever it is called for. Because if Jesus is God and he's first in your life, he even says, if your, si if your, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
right? If your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. And not saying that you are literally to do this, by the way. So don't do it. Don't try to pluck your eye out. I don't want you doing that. Right? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. But what Jesus is trying to say here is the seriousness of your sin. That you should treat it so seriously that you should pluck your eye out if it's causing you to sin. Right? It's that extreme. Like, you got to take it to the extreme with your sin. And if you don't, then something's not right. Right? And Paul is no different. Paul is no different. And you know what? This is where we're going to unpack the anger that I had inside me as well. So I'm going back to that again. This is where we're going to unpack that and how I was killing it and learning how to kill it daily. Because you know what? Like, I talked about how last week, you guys remember, I talked about how... Basically, my Christianity was pushing people away. And the reason why is because I knew a lot, I had to be right. And what I learned was this. I learned that the more I got to know people, and the more I listened to them, the more I got to know what they thought and what they valued. And if you really want to hurt someone, you go at those things. And so when it got hard for me to answer some of those questions that I had, and when, it, when I started to feel like I was losing the argument, it got personal real fast because I did not want to lose, right? I, was, I could not allow myself to be wrong. And so in my anger, I went out and lashed out at them, hit them at points where I knew it would hurt because I knew where they were coming from and I knew what the things they wanted, the things they liked, and what they were looking for in life. And that pushed people away because people were like, oh, he's just somebody who wants to debate me. He doesn't really care. There's nothing genuine about him. It's just pure knowledge. And he can't even be wrong about it. It has to, he always has to be right. Right? I saw slowly, very slowly, how it was actually making things worse. Right? How things were harder for me because I couldn't, one, I had no friends, obviously. And two, because I was facing this disability issue on my own. And I hated that. And the anger that came from all of that went into me just destroying people. But what Paul says here is, in verse 5, you're falling along. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? Why is it therefore, therefore? It is because if you are a genuine believer in Christ, number one, you ought to be setting your mind on heaven, right? We already talked about that. But number two, it's because you are a new creation in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5.17. As a new creation in Christ, your relationship to sin is different. It's changed. It's not the same. Where we once walked, and we're dead in the trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. But that is not what you are anymore. If you are a Christian, you are a new creation, and therefore your relationship to sin has to change. We're supposed to pursue the things 
that are listed in the verses to follow, Colossians 3, 12 to 17. That's what you're supposed to chase after. And we don't have time to cover all of that. But the thing I want to get is you're not supposed to be chasing sin anymore. You're not supposed to be chasing the things that just please what you want and please your senses. There's some business we have to take care of, isn't there? Before we even get to Colossians 3, 12 to 17, there is sin that needs to go. And before you can even put on all the things that Paul says to put on in verse 12 to 17, you have to kill the things that he lists in 5 to 11. And the first of these four items, if you're reading along in verse 5, are all about sexual desires that are obviously outside the marriage context. And the culture in which the Colossians were living in was extremely pagan, which means living in the now, living in the present, where sexual immorality was happening at a high rate because it was viewed as a form of amusement, entertainment, and pleasure. And so, yeah, you know, if we were to stay faithful to the text, that's exactly what it's saying, and I'm going to stay faithful to the text. And so here we need to consider where we're at. And you know what, for you, and, and I think for you guys, it's easy to say, oh, like, I'm too young for those things. Like, I would never, like, have sex with someone of the opposite gender. Like, I'm too young for that. That'll never happen. But Jesus, if he is first, said that when a man looks at a woman lustfully, they've already committed adultery, which is sex outside the marriage in his heart. Matthew 5:28. And you know what, I don't want to exclude the girls in here because I know... That is something that everyone struggles with. And you know, I think it's wrong for me just to assume that only guys struggle with sexual sin. <laughs> and so, yes, you know, like you laugh. You may laugh about it all you want. But the truth of the matter is, it's true. It's something we struggle with. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't happen. You don't practice the overt acts like they do. But what I'm asking is that you guys be honest with yourselves. You know, I don't know your thoughts. And I, I don't know your heart. I really don't. And your counselors don't either. I think we all wish we did, but we don't. But this is between you and God. This matter, yes. You can, be, you can lie to us all you want, but you can't escape God. You can't. And you know, I bring this up, and it's early, right? For most of you, you might think, oh, it's early. And you know what, you might decide, you know it's not that bad. And you know, you might allow it to stick around. But you know what, like, it'll come back to kill you. It will. <laughs> you see, the nature of sin, it doesn't just consume you after one try. It gets you a little bit by a little bit. The thought process is, it starts in the mind where it tries to convince you just to try it for a little bit. It's only a few seconds, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a particular sin. Just try it a little bit. Try it a little bit, and then you know, like, no one's going to know. No one's going to see you. Like, who knows? And then, you know, as soon as you give in, it's back in your head again, and then it's whispering, see, it wasn't so bad, was it? It wasn't so bad, was it? In fact, it actually feels good. You should try it some more. Have some more is what sin says. Whatever it is, have some more of it. And you know what the thing is? We test the limits and we test the limits. And eventually you just get stuck in it. You can't 
run from it anymore. That's how, na- that's how the nature of sin in general works. It starts by a little bit and it just pulls you in. And then once you're in, it's impossible almost to get out. And that's why Paul says here, put it to death. Kill it. Because if you don't, it will slowly be killing you. That's what John Owen says, a famous Puritan pastor. Mortification of sin is the book that he writes this in. And Paul tells us the consequence of the sin. God's wrath will come on account of these things. That's how serious these are to him. That's how serious sin is to him in general. That's how we ought to be taking sin for. We're supposed to take it seriously. Reminding you is what Paul is doing. Of what you live for. It's not yourself and the things of this earth anymore, but it's for God. And if God desires those things and he hates it that much, then we ought to have that same attitude. You know, like, I, I think the thing that I want you guys to get is, you know, we're not trying to change behavior. We don't live for behavior change. We don't live for moral improvement. We're supposed to live for holiness. And that's what we're striving for. We used to live for these things, which is what Paul says in verse 7, but not anymore. These things have to go. You must put them all away. And then we come to another list of items that Paul says we must get rid of. And this is where it gets personal for me. right? And this list I think we can all better relate to actually too. After Paul gives a command to kill sexual sin, he commands us to watch our anger. Verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. He makes very clear in verse 9 what he's trying to get at here. He's trying to encourage the believers as they relate to one another. So we're talking about relationships here, right? Which is what we talk about a lot this past year. He's saying don't wish evil upon other Christians or others in general. Don't tear each other apart with your words specifically. And you know, I'm sure we've all been there where someone does something that makes us really angry and we're really quick to unleash all anger on them. I know what this is like. I did that a lot. And then we yell at them and everything. And, you know, it's not just the yelling, though. It's the stuff that's being said. And Jesus himself, he says that in Matthew 15, 18, that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning that what we feel in our hearts translates to the things that come out of our mouths. And, you know, we wonder why people get hurt by words so much. It's because in that moment of our anger, our true colors and our true beliefs, they show what you really believe about that person. Right? You can't fake it. You can't fake that anymore. Like, you can't, like, put on a happy face. Like, when you're happy, it's easy to control. But when you're angry, oh, man, you can't, it's hard to control that. You can't fake it. And you know, as soon as the words leave your mouth and you discover you'd hurt the person... You can't take it back. You know, I I think we're really good at saying, oh, I didn't mean that. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I really didn't mean that. But you know, it it doesn't cut it because the truth is you know that it's true. You did mean it. You just didn't mean for it to come out. But you did mean it. And it's why why James says in his own book, in James 1.19, that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
because quick speech and quick tempers destroy relationships. You know, I learned that the hard way. Right? I talked about that a little bit. How I knew how to cut people where it hurt. I knew where people were going in terms of what they wanted. And I knew, like, if I could get in their way just a little bit, just by what I say, I know it'll hurt them enough that they'll stop talking to me. Right? It'll hurt just enough. Right? I'm not asking for it to completely destroy the relationship, but I'm just talking about how it might just hurt enough that they feel it. Right? Hit them where it hurts most, is what people always say. And in the Colossian church, this is exactly what was happening. These false teachers that were coming in that I talked about for the context of Colossians in general, they were creating divisions in the church, right? So then you had people that believed in one thing, people that believed in another thing, people that believed in other, other things. And you had these different factions, these different groups going at it. And they would fight and fight with each other in the church. In the same church, they were fighting. But what Paul is saying is, when you're doing this, all you're doing is making it easier for the false teachers to get in because you are so busy fighting with each other and creating your own little groups that they can come in and say whatever they want and someone's bound to believe it. Right? We're supposed to be killing sin together, is what Paul is saying. Kill sin together. Don't promote it. That's why he also says don't lie to one another because that just tears down the body of Christ. But instead... Paul says in verse 9 and 10, put off that old you and put on the new you which was already accomplished at the cross for you. Instead of fighting one another like you used to before you came into the church, you ought to be growing in your knowledge of God who He is in terms of Christ and how that knowledge should inform the way you live. And you should be doing it together. You should be doing it together. That's what we're supposed to be pursuing. Pursuing killing sin and setting our hearts and minds on Christ together. And notice that he says that it's being continually done. It's being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Meaning that it's happening. It's not sudden. It's not as soon as you become saved, you are perfect and sinless. But it is something that is slow and steady and progressive. The same word image is found in Colossians 1, which we talked about. Because at the end of the day, we're all under Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of social groups you are. Verse 11. We're all working together towards the same goal, which is to be renewed by God to be more like His Son, which means killing sin every single moment of your life when you see it. And not just by yourself, because this is not a one-man race. As Eugene always said, right? It's never a one-man race. It's together. But how are you spurring each other on and killing sin? That's what I want to get at tonight. If there's one thing I want you guys to do tonight in small groups, it's that. How can you work together to kill sin? Don't just accept it for what it is. But kill it because you know that this is what God wants for you. And if you are truly of God, you would want the things of God. And that is to kill sin. Keep killing sin because the warning is if you're not it will be killing you and before you know it it's going to be too late it'll be too late we're supposed to be killing sin together we're supposed to live as Christ and to build relationships within the church not destroy them now how did I end up killing anger 
I didn't completely kill it, but how am I daily working at it? I talked about this last week, and it's the same process. It's a similar process. It begins with genuine prayer. I talked about this on Sunday, too. And, you know, I, I bring this up because this is why it's so important. Because if you think about the way that chapter 3 is structured, verse 1 to 11, or 1 to 4, sorry, is talking about your thought process. It begins in your mind, and your prayer is similar. It starts from the heart and the mind, right? And then it goes from mind to action, verse 5 through 11. If your mind is set on Christ through prayer, if your desire, if you're, okay, I'm serious, truly desiring to kill sin, not just, oh yeah, I know I should be doing it, not nonchalant, you should be wanting to do it. If it is a genuine desire, then your prayer for yourself to change will also be genuine. It will be. But you got to want it. If you don't want it and you're too lazy, then don't even try it because you're going to fail. You got to want it enough. And that will tell you how much Christ really matters to you. Because if Christ matters that much to you, you would want to kill it and you would eagerly fight it. But if you're not even trying, then I ask you, where is God in your life? Second thing, I have to start asking what it is that I wanted and what it was that I wasn't getting. I talked about it earlier. The anger that I had was because I wanted to be normal, number one, which I couldn't change. So that spread into number two, which is, hey, you know what? Like, I might as well just be right all the time because I like being right. It feels good to be right. Right? It's, what did I want and what wasn't I getting? And so for you, when it comes to sin, what is it that you're wanting that you're not getting that you're willing to go far enough to get it? And thirdly, it's this. Turn with me to Psalm 119, verse 9. It's called Scripture Memory and Meditation. And this really, this is what really changed a lot of things for me. If you ask me how I know so many references and why I know verses, it's because I feel like I have to work at it. Because if I'm not working at it daily, then sin will kill me, right? If I really want to kill sin, I have to start here. Because if God is the answer, then shouldn't I be looking in the Bible for the answers? Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Here's the answer for you. By guarding it according to your word. What does that mean? It means this. How can a young person like you, like me, like anyone in this room really, how can a person pursue Christ and want to stay away from sin? It's by guarding it, meaning by protecting yourself with the Word of God, arming yourself with the Word of God. It starts here. It starts with memorizing. It doesn't matter what passage of Scripture you start with. It starts with just memorizing the Word of God. Guard it. Guard your soul according to His Word. Alright, second thing. Another song. And the reason why I choose Psalms is because it's very practical for this. Right? Because David was very good at this. Psalm 1, the very first psalm written in the Psalms, is by far one of the most helpful psalms for me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Meaning this, blessed is the person who surrounds himself 
or herself with people that will spur him or her on in Christ. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna surround yourself with people that indulge in sin, you might as well give in with them because the fight for sin is hard when you're the only one fighting it. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law, which is the word of God. The word, the key word is delight. Do you find pleasure in it? Because if you don't find pleasure in it, then it's going to be hard to memorize. It's going to be hard to want to be in the word of God if, it's hard, if, if you don't find delight in it. You have to delight in it. And on his law, he meditates, meditates, keyword meditates, day and night, meaning that it's constant. It's not ceasing. It's every moment. It's always happening. And what is the result? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which is basically like loose leaves or like basically like, uh, what is it? The bark on the trees where when the wind blows hard enough, it'll just fall off. Right? For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's my encouraging for you guys tonight. As you guys go into small groups, as you guys consider the last night of Unicoi for the year, I hope that you really helping each other and spurring each other on and fighting sin. That's the thing I hope for the most. And then so next year in August, you're already in that mindset. When you come back from retreat, you're already thinking that. You're already thinking that way. Like, how can I help my brother or sister grow in Christ? That's the thing I want you guys to leave with. How can I help the person sitting next to me grow in Christ today? And what do I have to do to help them get there? Because if you're not daily killing sin, then sin will be daily killing you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time you've given us. I just thank you for your word. Your word is truth, God. And I pray that you allow us to really dig into it. That you allow us to delight in it. May you give us a heart that wants it. May you help us to fight it. May you help us to grow. And God, I thank you for how you're continuing to work in each person. Lord, I thank you for the anger that is slowly going away. Whereas I meditate on your law, God, I see that it's just not worth getting angry anymore. The anger that I have towards others, the bitterness that I hold, Lord, it's not worth holding on to because you're so much better and so much sweeter and your law is so much sweeter than those things. God, I pray that you help us just to pursue that and to continually meditate on your law day and night. I pray for small groups as we go, uh, that we'd be honest with one another, that we would fight sin together genuinely, not just passively, but that it would be real, that it would be honest. Because God, if we're not killing it, it will kill us eventually. I thank you, and I pray. Amen.